My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Even that career advice that, um, you know, I think it's lacking out there. A lot of people um, force people to go to uni and then just get professional jobs and it's not about following purpose and passion and This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Chris Bates, founder of Wealthful. He will share the traveling stories that shaped his wealth view, including exploring the beauty of countries such as India and Egypt. As well as this, learn how to find success with our university degree and a common investing mistake involving supply and demand issues. Wealthful is a mortgage broking business with the goal to help young families build financial wealth and allow them to live a fulfilling life. It's been going for about eight years, you know, fortunately, it's been going really well, especially in the last few years, we've been able to grow pretty big team um, and we've sort of grown to one of the biggest sort of smaller boutique mortgage brokers out there. Um, you know, all our clients are sort of young couples, you know, 30s, 40s, um, you know, families, etc. Um, and they're mainly doing, you know, one of three things, you know, either buying their first home, maybe they've left it a little bit later and um, they're thinking about doing a big upgrade or a renovation. They're sort of having that dilemma and what to do first and how to make it happen. Um, or they're a little bit further in the line. They've got a happy home, and they're like, "Okay, let's let's. How do we sort of do things for our retirement?" And so, um, you know, generally that's sort of what we do. Our average loan is much higher than most brokers. It's probably you know one to one point five per client, whereas most brokers are sort of that you know sub a million mark. Um, and um, yeah, that's a bit about us. With his business performing so well, Bates is smashing his professional goals. As well as this, he's also reaching dreams in his personal life. I'm married to my wife Melanie. Got a couple of young kids under two, uh, so two under two at the moment. I probably can't say it anymore. She had a second birthday on Tuesday, so I shouldn't need to change my lingo. Two under two in one month. <laughs> Bates considers himself to be extremely lucky to have two children, one girl and one boy. Uh, I mean, my daughter's amazing. I've always wanted to be a dad, and so when that moment happened, um, you know, I did want a daughter first as well, and. Uh, you know, we're very lucky to have that. I think it's uh, it's so special. She's amazing. I just, you know, that's what we, you know, yeah. It's hard to sort of put into words what it means to be a dad. And um, yeah, she's she's a she's at this age now where she's sort of communicating and she's talking back and she's, you know, telling us what she wants, which is an interesting sort of step from, um, yeah, not being able to have those conversations. Evidently, Bates' family is a massive priority in his life. This means that he has a short work week 
Well, I run a pretty um, tight, because uh, we've got a pretty decent sized business in terms of um, clients and we have a, you know, a lot of clients coming to us. So I, I, at the moment, you know, just due to family commitments and what I value and I run a, you know, basically only working around 30 odd hours a week, you know, I run nine to four, you know, four days and have Friday um, mornings off. And, but what am I doing on those hours is my role is to do the strategy for clients. So, you know, I'll do, you know, like today, you know, probably five to 10 calls of, of new clients who come to us. And, and we're really talking through, you know, what's, what's happened in their past, where they want to head, what are they doing with their current properties? What's, what's their challenges? And then we come up with a bit of a plan on what's the next best move. Then we'll get documents from them. The team will make it happen from a loan point of view once we've done the strategy. So all day, every day, I'm just talking to people. I'm, I'm producing content, um, making podcasts, um, writing posts on LinkedIn, um, you know, touching base with existing clients when they're, you know, changes in their situation, what are they going to do next? Um, and so my role in the business is just really to, to find the clients, you know, through mainly it's producing content, you know, or relationships that people refer to us um, and to do their strategy, to figure out what's the next best move. We don't buy property. We, you know, we're massive believers in quality buyers agents. We've gone and, you know, as soon as I hear of someone who's good that's not in our network, I'll go and suss them out and potentially add them. But we, we refer to individual buyers agents in individual pockets all over the country. So not one company. We took over 20 in Sydney, for example. On the days that Bates does not work, he spends quality time with his family. Oh, we're massive believers, uh, not believers, but massive lovers of nature and travel and exploring. Um, you know, usually one weekend a month we're going somewhere, um, you know, obviously only in Australia the last couple of years, but you know, we usually, we're massive lovers of travel and nature. So if we're not traveling, we're going out hiking and walking and um, yeah, we just, you know, the best things in life are free, to be honest. It's just sort of being out and about and we're very fortunate. We live up in the northern beaches, so we're surrounded by water and, and, and nature. So, Bates was born in Melbourne, but he and his family moved due to his father's job. We moved to Newcastle because he was in the Air Force and there's the big RAF base up in there. Uh, he ended up leaving the Air Force and we ended up just staying in Newcastle. Um, yeah, for all my sort of teenage years. I went to um, Lambton High in Newcastle and um, I never really connected with sort of schooling. I, 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 I would do well, find, you know, at results, but the actual schooling process and, um, you know, sitting down and learning things, I did it. And so I had a very different type of brain. I think I had a, always a brain that was, uh, I was very fortunate that um, I was good with numbers. And that's just not being arrogant. I, I sort of was. And, um, you know, and school was, you know, not really a challenge for me per se, especially in those sort of number subjects. After finishing school, Bates followed the expected path and went to university. I sort of went to uni for a year, you know, study commerce. Always did well financially, but I, I, I well, not financially, but um, in results. But it was never a typical sort of, you know, straight A student just loving studying. Um, I wanted that real life world experience more, I guess, um, than, you know, just, you know, A's, A's, A's. So I knew I didn't really want to go to uni because I wasn't loving school, right? So I, I didn't really want to do that study. I wanted to get out and work and, you know, basically and so I got an apprenticeship as an accountant um, I guess you'd call it a traineeship and I was doing uni part-time but I could you know even after a year of being I was sort of well ahead of where I should be um, and I was sort of doing things that you know people were doing it for five or six years in that accounting practice were doing and I was like look if I'm going to be doing this in another five or six years I'm going to be setting myself insane so I moved to Sydney because I thought well Maybe I want to become in funds management and I want to become an investment banker. So I got a job at Platinum um, 
you know, but then after six, 12 months in sort of the you know, administration sort of investor services side um, and making friends with lots of traders and the um, investment bankers there, I could see that a lot of them were extremely stressed and extremely unhappy um, and were working stupid hours um, and it, they didn't really have much meaning. And so I didn't feel like I wanted to be an investment banker, I guess. Uh, and then I met a financial advisor and thought, you know what, this could be a better direction for me. And so I moved to London and became a financial advisor. After watching his sister successfully create a life in London, Bates knew that he could do the same. Uh, I was only 20 at the time and so I thought, look, you know, um, go over and experience. I knew that I could potentially get a job over there as well. You know, I, I sort of um, made a few, you know, inquiries and I was like, yeah, this will be fine. I can, this, the benchmarks of financial advice are really quite low in terms of the study requirements. It's something that's improved over the last, you know, 10 years but, you know, this is back to 2007. So, um yeah, met a financial advisor, become an advisor after a month. Um, pretty scary, to be honest. And you could do that in Australia um, up until recently. You know, they've just finally increased the standards to a degree um, in Australia. But, you know, back in the, the 20, 20, 2000s, I guess you call it, um, you know, it was very low. Um, and, you know, after a month, I was out there advising people and it was, you know, pretty pretty scary. And that's where... I actually got kicked out of the first bank. I was their top advisor in, in the area um, because I could see what I actually got access to data that I could see the whole bank was mis-selling products um, and I raised it and we had arguments with our boss and I thought, you know what, the grass is greener, I'll go to another bank and went to another bank and saw it was pretty much exactly the same. Years later, all that bad advice actually came out um, and the banks got into a lot of trouble over it. Um, but I could see it firsthand because I could see what I was doing versus the rest of the country and said, look, this is, they're just mis-selling products. And so, um, yeah, it made a real sort of, uh, you know, that first five to five years in advice, I was very conflicted because you know, I was very passionate about helping people, making sure we're doing the right thing, you know, but I could see the industry was, was heading in the wrong direction and um, it wasn't, you know, giving great advice, to be honest. While he was in London, Bates took advantage of his ability to travel. Oh, absolutely, we, we did lots of traveling and, you know, uh, had an amazing group of friends that were probably all around 10, 15 years older than me, to be honest. Um, and yeah, I was, I'm still very close to a lot of those friends now. It's, it was a, such a special time and I think it was also interesting to do it at such early age. Um, it made me sort of become very independent, um, you know, friends sort of, uh, allowed me to mature a little bit faster, I, I you know, just in terms of networks um, and, yeah, and seeing the world and, and, and especially travel does that. It, it sort of um, makes you understand the world on a bigger level. We went to sort of Chamonix, sort of skiing. Um, we went to obviously all your, you know, your Berlins and your Prague and all those sort of um, cute little towns. Paris, we used to go to Paris quite a bit because, you know, just jump on the Eurostar and straight down, um, you know, food you've never tasted before. Um, I mean, the traveling that really sort of resonates with me is the traveling I probably did after London. It's the places like India and Africa, um, Egypt, obviously Egypt in Africa. Um, you know, they're probably the holidays that I sort of really love the most, you know, Sri Lanka, um, you know, where we're, we're sort of, yeah, just looking at nature, to be honest, and getting to really be part of the community and um, et cetera. So we... we Really just go and look at wildlife. Traveling to those countries played a big role in shaping Bates' worldview. You do come back a lot more grateful. You won't whinge about the things that you used to whinge about. Um, you see things that aren't fair and you see things that are, are tough for people. But you also see happiness and you see um, 
you know, they can be, you know, people are very happy around the world with very little um, and it's not the other things that make people happy. And um, you actually form really close connections with either people you're traveling with or people, um, etc. So I just think it makes you a lot more grounded um, and you understand what really matters in life a lot more after visiting these places. But there's so much beauty in these places as well. Yeah, maybe they're crowded, but, you know, India is absolutely stunning, you know, especially when you get up into places like the mountains. Um Africa is just unbelievable, you know, in terms of wildlife, etc. And so, um, yeah, I mean, yes, you've definitely got the issues with populations and, um, you know, standard of living, but then you've also got beautiful countries in these places as well and beautiful people. So, um, yeah, I, I find a lot more uh, benefits going to places like that than I would going to, say, New York or London or a major city and, um, you know, that's obviously really just a carbon copy of each other in some sense. After living and working in London for four years, Bates decided to come back to his roots in Melbourne. My grandfather wasn't very well at the time and that was one of the reasons why I came back. I was like, if I don't go now and if something happens, then um, I'll regret it. Um, and, you know, and it was sort of what turned out that way. Unfortunately, a couple of years later, he did pass away, but I spent two years living in Melbourne and, and seeing him every week. Um, and uh, also after living in London and you know, living in Sydney for a bit, you know, I hadn't scratched that itch, to be honest. I still wanted to sort of see um, a different part of Australia and so living in Melbourne for a couple of years. It's been um, also great because, I mean, I, I my grand, my nana's still there, my dad's still there, so I know Melbourne really well and I, I do visit them quite often and, um, and so we've got lots of clients who are buying in Melbourne and I can really guide them on that sort of journey as well because I know the city really well. When he came back to Melbourne, Bates continued to work as a financial advisor. So I was still working as a financial advisor in 2011 and I joined a, um, a practice that was probably offering sort of, you know, quite cookie cutter advice, you know, it's, it was a type of business. And then I thought, look, I'm not sure if this is really for me anymore. I need to get into a better practice. And that's when I, I took a bit of a, a turn. I went from working with a lot of older clients, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. That's traditionally where most financial advice is, is driven um, to help people retire basically. Um, and I joined a company that's really worked with, you know, 30s and 40s. And that was coming from Property Planning Australia. They're quite well known in the, the mortgage broking sort of industry. They're based in Melbourne. Um, and I joined as a financial advisor within that business. And uh, after about sort of 12, 18 months, I was like, you know, generating a lot of new clients for the business in, you know, in different ways. And um, I also wanted to control the conversation around the mortgages and, the, the, the advice around that um, rather than just the, you know, insurance and super and other things. Um, and um, we were doing joint meetings with mortgage brokers and I thought, you know what, I just want to become a mortgage broker. I just want to be the one person driving that um, rather than the conversation going in, in a different direction than I think it should. Um, and so I became a broker then. So I was working as a financial advisor and a broker. Um, you know, we, we kept our financial advice and started, kept doing that till 2020s, only a couple of years ago. But, you know, in parallel, we were growing ourselves as mortgage brokers. Um, and, um, yeah, we now work with lots of financial advisors. Financial, we kind of carved out a niche in financial advice world where um, people had seen that we became brokers um, and had seen our sort of success. Um, and we really just focus 100% on the property discussion with young clients. Um, and so a lot of financial advisors were referring to us and, you know, and so they still refer to us now um, because we, they know we understand, you know, what quality advice is and, and how to work with them. Bates founded Wealth on July of 2014. We're coming up to eight years now. Um, 
and um, it, it wasn't called, it was called Canopy Private. I was a little bit um, torn whether I wanted to work with a lot of wealth management clients still um, or just go for that younger clientele. And then we, we shift, shifted to wealth. I'm not exactly sure, maybe 12, 18 months into business. Uh, it, it was at an interesting point in time in the business where I was very passionate around um you know, wealth moving into the right direction. I was frustrated with wealth management industry because it was all around numbers and making money and profit and it lost the whole meaning of what it's all about and that's actually true wealth and, you know, and wealth is in many forms, whether it's health or family or relationships or um, experiences or purpose, et cetera. And so it was just really a play on that to to talk more about true wealth Um, and, you know, and make people really understand they are wealthy. And, you know, this goes back to those travel discussions, you know. It's, it's all about a, your mindset or your perception of what's wealth. Um, and so that's where it sort of came from, a sort of mindful wealth and to sort of think about it in those terms. Um, but, yeah, it still is a bit misunderstood, to be honest. I think people, when they see the word wealth, they think naturally to money. It's hard for people to make that brain switch. Coming up after the break, we hear about Bates' first investment property. Um, but we bought a house in Melbourne a few years ago. He shares common mistakes made when investing. We know exactly what doesn't work through looking at all what they've done over the years. We'll learn how to identify low risk in long-term investments. I do a lot of reading around sort of um, how cities form. I'll track every development, etc. And that's next. I'm Taran Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Let's be real, deals that can yield 20 to 30% per annum do exist. Don't believe me? Well, here's a story about property development I invested in Victoria. This developer had the project fully funded beforehand but he and his family suffered a loss, a circumstance that led him to be unable to proceed with the development. So, I stepped in and in two weeks, we funded the shortfall allowing for the development to continue. Five months later, the development was refinanced and we received our funds back with interest. Yes, there are amazing opportunities in the property market like this one. So, do you want to get a better return with low risk on your money? Then register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. For his first investment property, Bates stuck to an area inside of his comfort zone. It was about four or five years ago. We, um, I used to do a lot of shares, um, you know, all through my 20s. I had margin loans and um, invest a lot into the sort of the business, the sort of startup and traveling, etc. Um, but we bought a house in Melbourne a few years ago. Um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a tough market. It was sort of 2015, 16 um, and um, it was when the business could have the income to sort of do it. Um, and yeah, it was just sort of house in the inner, inner north of, of um, Melbourne. This property became a principal place of residence for Bates and his family. We did live in it, so we got sort of six years sort of um, you know tax-free exemption. Um, the idea was if we did stay in Melbourne, then we could sort of renovate it and live in it. Um, but if we decide to leave Melbourne and move to Sydney, then we will um, you know buy a house in Sydney, for example, and keep it as an investment. We've still got it down there now. A property investment journey can be viewed as a learning curve. Bates takes away the lessons learnt from his clients. Look, I think that the uh, the learnings are sort of out there through all the clients. You know, we speak to you know over 
700 new clients last year. So, and then if you multiply that over the years and we sort of, we know exactly what doesn't work through looking at all what they've done over the years. Um, for us, fortunately, I haven't gone and bought down the quantity strategy or just focused on getting properties. We made a, we bought that and we bought another house and then we've done a big reno on that. And then our next decision will be sort of, you know, another block of land and then do a build on that. And so, you know, we've always believed in the quality over quantity strategy. Um, and we're very fortunate as well. We bought up in the Northern Beaches in Sydney and, you know, pre-COVID. Um, and so that's done very well for us as well. But um, yeah, what works for clients is buying in, you know, aspirational parts of capital cities where there's higher incomes um, and buying assets that they would really love as a family, you know, things that are in scarce supply and things that um, they're willing to go into a lot of debt for. Um, and, you know, that's the stuff that's gone up a lot in Brisbane in the last, you know, 12 months. It's the stuff that's gone up a lot in Sydney and it's stuff that continues to go up well in Melbourne. Um, and, um, yeah, that's what, that's what we sort of follow ourselves and that's what we would recommend our clients to do. Bates has noticed a common investing mistake involving supply and demand. I, I think it all comes down to simply thinking about things from a demand and supply and, and really going back to, I know that sounds so basic, everyone's like, yeah, no, I get it, I get it, but a lot of people don't apply it, right? So if you think about things, uh, what doesn't work for a lot of people is apartments, for example, and definitely high density, et cetera. The reason is supply. And secondly, the demand's not, it can just keep on building more of them. Um, and the problem is that demand is always not the greatest of demand. You know, high income families don't want to be raising their kids in high density apartments they want to be buying houses etc so you have a demand issue but you also have a supply issue the same thing is when you you might say well i'll buy a house in the outer suburbs for example of capital cities well yeah okay maybe supply is limited not always because there's greenfield estates but then also the demand's not that strong the higher incomes generally gravitate towards closer to the city where there's greater lifestyle uh, when they start doing better so yeah you may have a supply restriction in some sense but demand um, so income growth sort of there, et cetera. Um, that's why we don't really believe in sort of the quantity strategy and playing in those more affordable markets. Um, so generally a lot of new property hasn't worked for really anybody. Um, now people have got lucky with off the plan purchases, you know, at the start of a boom and then have sold their, you know, off the plan, um, you know, maybe just at settlement, et cetera. But very few that doesn't work. Um, we very much rarely see... Um, you know, even people doing duplexes and, and things like that, we find a lot of people buy the land too expensive, they overspend on the build and then the, the market shifts over that time frame to get it done. Um, we haven't seen much success, um, yeah, in, in that space. So it's really the, the people who have come to us and they've got the most, like lots of properties, to be honest, they're the ones who are usually in the biggest mess and we usually have to unwind their portfolios. It was even one yesterday we, you know, he's had to unwind it and he bought a house in New Farm in Brisbane two years ago. That house he paid, you know, 1.8. It's probably worth over 3 mil now. Um, and so, you know, that's we he had like eight properties, I think it was, or seven or eight. He's gone down to sort of still got two of them. But then he shifted his borrowing capacity into a quality asset and that's where he's made all his money, you know, through a simple decision and, and buying a quality asset. And so um, the people we've seen um, do the best is the people who have just gone and carefully just bought a quality asset and kept it um, and, you know, and, and focus on that rather than trying to buy as many properties um, as you can. Since COVID-19 and people beginning to work from home, the issue of supply and demand has shifted. I think prior to COVID, there was a real pressure that time was the most important thing for, for people and they had to sort of get back to their house as quick as they can and they didn't want to spend an hour on the train twice a day, five days a week 
and so absolutely they would pay a premium to reduce their commute time right COVID shifted that and so what it does it did it created people to look at areas that are great lifestyle but are a bit further away and the train stations didn't matter as much so what it is shifted demand obviously to pure lifestyle locations like the Byrons and Sunshine Coast etc um but it also moved it to the sister cities, you know, the north of Wollongong, the central coast, the Mornington, Geelong. Um, but it moved to the premium parts of those markets because if people said they're going to leave, you know, the inner ring of Sydney, they wanted the premium end of the central coast. So places um, like Avoca went up a lot there and Thoreau in Wollongong, you know, the real nice pockets of these lifestyle age. Um, not everything in these um, locations went up anywhere near as much as the premium end. Um, uh yeah, so I mean that's that's definitely what what happened is you will find people are willing to space is more important obviously because you know they are working from home or they and so they before they would want to hug the train lines but now they're willing to go a little bit further and maybe it's a double leg commute and they're like a bus to the train station they're willing to um, look at um, and so places like in the upper north shore of Sydney like St Ives and and things like that they became much more desirable because it's a great place to live but commute was holding it back before where we are is exactly the same, you know, commute, people are willing to commute from further. And so I do think quality sort of shifted because the uh, the commute wasn't as important to drive whether people were moving there as much. Bates does not think that this is going to change. I don't think it's going back. You know, I think top talent are demanding flexibility. They've had a taste of it. And, you know, if they're um, going to apply for a job, they're going to make sure that that's, you know, part of their terms and, um, and, you know, maybe the 20s and 30s are going to want to be in the city to get those promotions and things like that. But a lot of the top talent in that 30, 35 plus range, they're going to want flexibility. And so then the whole company is going to have to offer, et cetera. And so the return to work thing, I think, um, is, you know, yeah, potentially in some form, but I don't think it's going back to five days. And so we are sort of pro, um, you know, places that are commutable to the city. Um you got to remember as well, though, is, is that um, the places close to the city will always be super desirable because a lot of jobs, especially business owners, they don't want to be working from home a lot. Um, and so a lot of execs, a lot of um, they need to be on the ground, a lot of um, positions. They can't just work from home. They need to be out in construction, for example. Um, and if one party, you know, even if it's the husband or the wife has a job that requires maybe they're in the hospitals or something like that, right? and they need to be, um, they can't work from home, then that the commute problem starts again. Um, and so you also find that, um, so the inner ring properties will always do really well. And people, some, uh, a lot of people do like that city vibe and that city in and out, um, um, especially people who aren't from Australia. Um, they've grown up in, you know, smaller places all around the world. And they say, if I'm going to live in Sydney, I'm going to live in the action. And, um, and so when migration kicks off, um, again, is you'll find that a lot of people from around the world are more than happy to have a bigger two-bedroom apartment or a three-bed apartment somewhere in a lifestyle location around the capital city, um, around Sydney in particular, um, because um, yeah, they if they you know their friends and families come and visit from around the world, they want to be in the action, um, and they're more than happy to live in a smaller space. So we're definitely for um, yeah. In a, in a ring property still and we do think that now as the city gets big, busier and the roads get busier and the public transport gets busier as well the pressure cooker especially if populations in sydney for example go from five to six to seven to eight million over time um those commutes become harder and um and that then puts pressure again back on the inner ring so um yeah you've got to be gutsy to say the inner ring's going to um, die I, i'd say the inner ring's going to be super strong so are the lifestyle hubs and so are the bigger houses in the um, lifestyle hubs in the middle and outer ring. 
After hearing about common investing mistakes, let's look towards the flip side. Bates shares one of his aha realizations. Look, I think it's, it's, I do a lot of reading around sort of um, how cities form. I'll track every development, etc. And I think once people understand how a city is going to grow um, and how you've got little sanctuaries and nimbyism in, in capital cities and heritage overlays, etc., um, you can start to really formulate that these pockets will be great longer term and they've got lower risk because they're likely to be offering the same lifestyle benefits long term. And as the city gets bigger and more places get knocked down and rebuilt, these sanctuaries become even more desirable. And so I think that it's just really through those um, constant sort of research and understanding, you know, how the city's going to grow, you can then sort of form, you know, p- apply that in really any city, to be honest. Um, you know, um, you could say, well, where is the where do people in this city that are doing well financially, where do they want to live, you know? Why do they want to live there? What's what's the reasons? It's the type of housing, it's the lifestyle benefits, it's the bigger blocks, it's the, you know, heritage overlays, it, et cetera. Um, and so you want to be in these parts of the market um, no matter where you're investing um, rather than the more, um, you know, affordable part of the market. We'll continue to explore Chris Bates' journey in a future episode of Property Investory. We'll hear about his strategy. I think the hot buy and hold strategy is the best strategy. The resources that Bates used to kick off his own property investment journey. I really love Pete Wargent. Um, you know, Pete is a you know a very smart chap who really understands you know a lot around property and does a lot of research. And so I'd say his blogs was, was definitely a key sort of part of the picture. The best advice that Bates has received? Go out and see the world and um, and invest in yourself and invest in your knowledge and um, just really have a crack at it and, and, and believe in yourself. And that's next time on Property Investory. If you love the show, perhaps you're now ready to invest your money in a low-risk, high-return deal. If you are, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a lender. There are amazing opportunities in the property market right now and I'm looking for lenders who want to invest their money for as short as 6 months. What are you waiting for? Don't let your money just sit in the bank. To register your interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.